0: Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is what we call today the Great Commission, and we believe that Jesus gave these words to his disciples to go into the world and to make more disciples of the way of Jesus, and that we today, as those who follow Jesus, if you're here and you say, I'm following Jesus, we carry this mission with us. We carry this command with us. And so what I want to talk about today is we're in our fourth and final week of our Wrecking Room series, is how do we as the church move forward with this mission in the age of deconstruction? Because... We have been specifically in the first three weeks of this series talking about deconstruction as it relates to Christianity, deconstruction as it relates to faith and what it means that people have been deconstructing their faith within the church and how to approach that and how to have healthy conversations surrounding that. But as I was doing some listening for this series and some reading, I was listening to one author who was making the argument that he believes we live in general in an age of deconstruction. He was making the contention that we live in a society that's strongly influenced by a French philosopher by the name of Derrida, who's the father of deconstruction. And some of you are like, I don't care about any of this right now. Don't worry, we're getting somewhere, but uh, the, 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 the the father of deconstruction and uh, Basically, this author was making the argument in the interview that we as a society in general, specifically in the United States, have began deconstructing many things, not just faith. He's, he's making the argument that we've deconstructed some of our values as in the United States. We've deconstructed some of the ways we see government and what we think is the way to handle government and how to handle social issues and things like that, that we've deconstructed even business models. The example that he gave was years ago, if you wanted to stay somewhere, you would get a hotel or a motel, but now you can get Airbnb, and we've kind of deconstructed that model of hospitality and reconstructed something different, where he talked about transpo- transportation, how it used to be, if you didn't have a car, you get a taxi or a cab or take a bus or something, but now there's Uber and Lyft, and in some ways, one way of looking at this is to say we're in a society of deconstruction and reconstruction, or you could just say things are changing, things are changing rapidly. And the conversations that we're even having just this month about what we believe to be important could change next month. It seems like things are constantly changing. And it seems like maybe forms are being deconstructed and reconstructed or it's just like everything's always flowing and moving and stuff is always different. And so how do we as the church move forward in a time such as this? How do we stay close to the mission of Jesus in Matthew 28, to go and make disciples of all the nations in an age of deconstruction. So I was thinking through this question over the past few weeks, and a few things immediately came to mind. I started writing out a list of stuff. You know, one of the things is to go back to week one and say, hey, we should be leading the way as people who listen, to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Another thing that came to mind for me that we're not going to jump in this week, but so many people have mentioned this to me that I wanted to acknowledge it and say that we are going to have a conversation about it, is church leadership structures. Like we got to talk about this. What, is, what does it mean for us to have a healthier leadership structure and have leadership structures that are not singular but plural? They have leadership structures that are diverse generationally and racially, and also bring women to the table as well. That's not just a patriarchy where we just, you know, we, you know, just all of us men around the table. Like, what does it mean for us to, to create healthier leadership structures in the church? And that's a conversation that we will have later on and a conversation we need to have, but not one that I'm going to dive into today. I just wanted to acknowledge for those who've been giving us feedback, that's something that we're hearing. That's something that we want to have a conversation about, and we are going to get there. And I was thinking through all these different reasons, but I wanted to give us three, three things that we can do today, like three concepts that we can all adopt today, whether it's a group or on an individual level, to say, here's how we all can say, hey, if I want to today, I can start walking in these, in these aspects. I can start walking in these characteristics. I can start becoming the type of person who adopts this mentality in an age of deconstruction because I believe that no matter how much Things change. We as a church believe that no matter how much things in society or the world around us seem to be changing, that the mission of Jesus can and will always move forward. But sometimes we have to rethink some things, rethink how we're doing some things, so that we can be a church that moves forward in a healthy way with the mission of Jesus where we currently exist. So we're going to go three things today. As I said, these are things that if you want to, you can pick them up today. You can start wrestling with them and choosing to walk in them today. And we can do that as a church and you can do it on an individual level as well. So one of the things that I think that we need to look at and reconsider as we move forward in an age that's constantly moving and changing is our approach. Is our approach. So growing up, I had a lot of obsessions. I was kind of a weird kid. And one of the things that I was absolutely obsessed with was going to Blockbuster, the video rental store. If any of you remember Blockbuster, some of you may not remember Blockbuster at all, but I was obsessed with Blockbuster. I used to love going to Blockbuster to rent movies. We had another local place in my hometown in Winchester, Virginia called Video Warehouse. And I was obsessed with going to Video Warehouse as well. Like I, I loved going to the video rental store. I would have dreams. I don't remember many of my dreams, but I would have dreams about my parents saying, yes, we can go rent a movie tonight. I, I loved walking around. I would spend forever in these stores. Should I re-rent this movie? Should I rent this movie? I wouldn't only rent New releases. I would rent old movies as well. I loved going to Blockbuster. In fact, I hope to one day take a trip to Bend, Oregon to visit the last Blockbuster. I want to see it. It's not on a written down bucket list, but it's on the bucket list in the back of my mind because there's a certain smell and feel to Blockbuster. And the fact that I can't experience it anymore is heartbreaking to me. And then Blockbuster slowly died. For those of you who don't know, we used to actually have to go to a store to rent movies. We couldn't just click on things. And so uh, it's, Blockbuster slowly died because Netflix came along. Does anybody remember when Netflix would mail you movies? You'd get movies in the mail. And now, then they started, you know, they transitioned to streaming. And because of that, Blockbuster just couldn't, couldn't keep up. And it ended up dying. And there's only one left now. But in the church... I think sometimes we've had a bit of a blockbuster mentality of come and see, come and see what we're doing, come and be a part of what's going on, come and see, come and see, come and see. And I think sometimes we need to broaden our approach to also having a Netflix approach. Where blockbuster was come and get movies from us, Netflix was we are bringing the movies to you. And as those of us who are following Jesus, there's a responsibility to recognize that your life is an access point to Jesus for somebody. Your life as you walk in the power and the the wisdom and the fruit of the Holy Spirit is an access point for somebody to experience Jesus. Now don't get me wrong, I love what we do here on Sunday mornings and I hope that we continue to grow, I hope it gets bigger, I hope it gets louder, and we are going to continue to do everything we can to give God all the glory here on Sunday mornings and do this every week because this is valuable. I hope that this is the best hour of your week and it charges you up for the week ahead so that you can walk in faith every single day as you live as an access point to Jesus. But sometimes I think that we've adopted the mentality of, oh, the best, the only way, the only way to experience God is to come to a gathering. But actually, you can be the very means by which somebody else experiences Jesus that you are an access point, that we can't just have a blockbuster mentality, but as we move forward in, a, in an era of constant change and wondering what's happening next and what are things going to look like, we have to be willing to bring Jesus to others. And when we go back to how the church started, the apostles and the acts of the apostles, they were all about this. They were constantly bringing Jesus to others. I, I had a new way of seeing this a few years ago I was at, when I was in seminary, and I don't, I don't share a lot from that time because there are some ways in which seminary was boring. There are other ways in which it was very, very valuable. And one of the most valuable talks that I ever heard when I was in seminary was from a gentleman by the name of Dr. Larry Caldwell. And Dr. Caldwell had spent 30 years of his life as a missionary, 20 years of it in the Philippines. And after his missionary work, he's dedicated the next part of his life to something that he calls ethnohermeneutics. Now, if you've been in church for a while, that word hermeneutics might be familiar to you. It, it means essentially just basic, very basic level of the interpretation of Scripture, hermeneutics, the interpretation of Scripture. Ethnohermeneutics, though, is learning what it means to interpret your culture, to interpret the community that you're in, to, to interpret the society that God has placed you in. And sometimes I think we've lost this essence of what does it mean to truly get to, know, to get to know the communities that we have been placed in? As opposed to, oh, just come over here all the time. Maybe we need to start realizing that the spaces that we're in, there are people in those spaces, and we, as those who are disciples of Christ, are called to get to know people in those spaces, to build true, genuine relationships with them. We see this happen in the book of Acts. Paul and Peter, as they're preaching they're, they're masters at what they're doing. Well, at one point, Paul does preach so long that a guy falls asleep and falls out of a window. So maybe he wasn't the best at what he did, but he was pretty good at what he did. And, and when they would preach, a lot of times they were preaching in a Jewish context. And so they would quote from the Old Testament scriptures because that's what their audience would have known. And in preaching from the Old Testament scriptures, they would get their audience to see, hey, this is who Christ is. But then there's one instance in Acts chapter 17, where Paul finds himself in Athens, Greece, which was an unusual place for a Jewish rabbi to find himself. And he's preaching, and he's causing a bit of a ruckus, and people seem to think that what Paul is saying is interesting. They're like, well, let's let this guy talk, even though it's a bit controversial, and we think he might be a little bit crazy. And when Paul's in Athens, Greece, I want to point out to you how he starts his talk to them. Look at this in Acts chapter 17. So Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. What's he doing? He's interpreting the culture that he's in. He's exegeting the group that he's around as opposed to, and so he's saying, I I observe that you are very religious. He doesn't start off by saying, oh, this this stuff that you're doing is horrible. You heretics, you're all about to burn. No, he says, hey, I've observed that you are very religious in all respects. He starts off by showing them respect for what they're doing. He says, hey, I've observed what it is that you're doing here. For while I was passing through and examining, I was looking at this. I didn't just assume everything. I was looking at what you were doing and examining the objects of your worship. I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He said, I, I noticed when I was walking and looking, there's this unknown God and there's something about that there. And what you're worshiping in ignorance, I want to talk to you about. And he goes on to explain from this place of the unknown God they're worshiping to who Jesus is. And he goes on in Acts 17 verses 24 through 27 to give an explanation of the work of Christ and all that he has done and who he is. And, and it's, wow, like he, he just interpreted the culture. He, he found the needs within the culture that he was in. And then he said, hey, here's where Jesus is in all of this. Look at what he goes on to do in verse 28. He says about Christ, for in him, Christ, we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. So he doesn't say, hey, as the Old Testament scriptures say, because the men in Athens, they would have had no idea. They would have had very little reference point for the Old Testament scriptures. That was not the community that they lived in. So he references their religious texts, their poets. And he says, just as some of your poets have said, because I've been observing and I've been learning and trying to get to know you, for we are his children. So he uses their own religious texts in their context to get them to see who Christ is. To get them to see that he is establishing his kingdom on earth that is in heaven. To get them to see that he is the resurrected king. He spent time getting to know the people in the place that he was in church, we have to relearn what this means. This is messy. It can be complicated. It can be difficult. But what would it look like if we were quick to listen and we changed our approach and instead of always, oh, just come over here, we actually went into someone else's space and got to know them so well and say, hey, I want you to consider the way of Jesus based off of some things that I've seen here and here. As you have a genuine dialogue and a conversation. Paul explains this method in First Corinthians chapter nine. He says, "For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law is under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law is without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law." To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I by may all means save some. What would it look like if we as the church adopted that approach to truly walk in relationship with other people, to become all things to all people, so that we can be access points to Jesus wherever we find ourselves? One of the questions I get from people every once in a while is, Is your church focused on evangelism or discipleship? It's a question people like to ask. Is your church focused on evangelism or discipleship? And typically when people are looking for an answer to that question, about 10% of it is concerned with the strategy and the vision and the mission of the church. And about 90% of it is concerned with what kind of sermons are you giving on a Sunday morning? Are you giving evangelism messages? And typically what they mean by that is, are you giving a message that's about, you know, 20 minutes long and then at the last 10 minutes you just talk about shame and guilt the entire time and make people feel really bad so they can come forward and make a decision? Is that what you are? Are you an evangelism church? Just make decisions, make decisions every single week. Is that what you are? Or are you a discipleship church, which typically from that frame of reference is, do you know, do you preach for like 50 minutes to an hour and go verse by verse and give the Hebrew and the Greek of every single word? And if somebody were to come into your church who's never been before, they would have no idea what you're talking about. Is that what you are? Are you over here? where you're just, you know, invitation every week, every week. Are you, are you discipleship? Or is, you know, what, what are you? I believe that if we were to truly change our approach and adopt this method of the early church, to truly get to know people and to walk with people, that evangelism and discipleship would not have to be two things that we see as against one another, but they would actually work together as they are supposed to. Because Jesus said to go and make disciples. And a disciple in the first century was a student, an apprentice of a rabbi, they would model their life after the rabbi. The, the best modern picture I have for this, and I'm sorry, some people will be good with this. Some people. But the best modern picture I have would be like in Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, when Anakin looks just like Obi Wan used to look. He gets that stupid little rat tail thing, and he starts following Obi Wan to the best of his abilities. He is Obi Wan's apprentice. Then he turns to the dark side. You know, you know, Palpatine, all that stuff in Episode Three. But, but. That's the, that's the best modern picture I have of apprenticing and being a student in the way of Jesus. If all of us truly lived as disciples, as students in the way of Jesus, and we are living life with others, that's an evangelism and a discipleship approach because then others may begin to walk in the way of Jesus with us. What would it look like if we had friends and family who we could just wake up and have a conversation with them one day and say, hey, I think you've been you know, walking in this whole Jesus thing with me this entire time. And no, you didn't have to go to a service where you, where you did this or that. But what, what do you think of Jesus? Where we could just have natural conversations based off of the way that we are living our life. That we don't have to just make decisions, but we can make disciples. Living and walking as students and apprentices in the way of Jesus. To truly get to know the communities that we've been placed in. Secondly, I want to talk to you about aim. What are we aiming at? We are obviously, above all else as a church, we are aiming to follow Christ. And the language we use here for that is to to aim to follow Jesus, to, to walk in the new story that he has for us. That's our aim. But then also there's an aim of what are we fighting against? We're always wondering that. We always want to know that whether we ask it that way or not. We look at different people and stuff. as, What are we fighting against? What are we aiming at? And we pastors, we have like pastor talk that we use. Have any of you been to, you know, various churches and you're like, I've heard other pastors say that. And it's like the little cute cliches and, you know, all that fun stuff. And we all have kind of pastor talk that we adopt. And one of the things I've noticed that a lot of pastors say, and I say it myself, so I'm not, I'm not really hating on anyone, but I'm hating on myself a little bit here too. And I wish that I would not say this, but I still say it sometimes. But a lot of pastor language sounds like this. They'll start a message Or I'll start, you know, we all do. We start a message and we kind of give this concept or this idea and then we'll say, here's what we need to do with that idea. We take this idea, culture says this, but God says this, you know, culture says to do this, but God says you should do this. And I heard someone say that one day, this is a few months ago, and I said to myself, who is culture and what exactly are they saying? Who is culture? Because it's very easy to create a straw man argument and say, oh, culture is saying this, but God says this. And maybe that example worked a little bit better years ago when culture was a little bit more uniform. But there are so many subcultures and ideas and concepts floating around today. What that actually sounds like now is this group of people over here who I don't like, they say this, but God says this this. Cultures, typically culture is representative of a group. It's, oh, you know, I don't, you know, I don't really, you know, I don't agree with them or get along with them. And, and I started thinking, like, this is not really a healthy way of viewing things because, oh, you can just say culture says whatever you want culture to say. Oh, it, without giving any data, without giving any research, without giving any you just, oh, you know, culture says this. And it's just creating a weak argument to say, because then a bunch of people get worked up about, I can't believe culture is saying that, I can't believe they're doing that, they're destroying our kids, they're destroying our lives. Well, Who is culture and what are they saying? And what I've noticed that this mentality does sometimes of it, it, what it does is it creates us versus them. And we're the good guys and the bad guys are over there doing all of this bad stuff. And we are fighting against those people. And I would contend that we need to adjust our aim a little bit. That we need to rethink what it is that we are aiming at. We need to rethink who it is that God has called us to fight against. Look at this example in Ephesians 6 where Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's a lot there for one verse. We will do a series on spiritual warfare, but I want to focus first on that first line. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Jesus said in John 10, 10 that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You see, people are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. Yes, thank you. People are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. I want to share with you this quote from Pastor John Mark Comer in his latest book, Live No Lies. He says, Now let me be very clear the people of the world are not our enemy. They are the object of Jesus's love. As Paul wrote, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, including people of differing religious, ethical, or political perspectives. God so loved the people of the world that he gave his one and only son. Our fight is not against them, but for them. That's who our fight is for. So let's stop aiming at this person and that person. And I'm going to say this really hateful thing, this horrible thing. We, that's not the level that we should be fighting on. The enemy is the enemy, not other people. And our fight is for them. There is no person that exists that Jesus does not look at them and say to them, follow me. Just as he extended that invitation to you, he extended that invitation to all people. If all people are the handiwork of God, then every single person has the capacity to have God at work within them. And so we should refocus. The enemy is the one who's trying to destroy. And if there are people who even, it seems like they're moving in the direction of the enemy, that doesn't mean that we start throwing hate at them. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. People to be loved. And even when it comes to, well, we're fighting against the enemy. We're fighting against the enemy. Let's keep this in mind as well, that the enemy was defeated at the cross. And so we fight as overcomers in Christ. We fight as overcomers, as those who are walking and living as disciples. Let's adjust our aim and stop always firing at other people, but live as overcomers over the enemy and the resurrected life that we have in Christ. Amen. And lastly, adaptability. Adaptability. The church is a movement that should be flexible and malleable and adaptable. Once again, as we look at Acts, in the book of Acts, so many different things were always being thrown at the the church all the time. But they didn't let that stop them from moving forward in the mission that Christ had called them to. In Acts chapter 27, Paul is finally on his way to Rome and he makes it very clear in his letter to the Romans that he wanted to get to Rome. Paul wanted to get to Rome. He wanted to be there. And he's finally on his way to Rome, but on his way, the the way to get to the Rome, he he was in prison. So he's going there as a prisoner. And in Acts 27, it's a very interesting chapter where there's a storm and all these problems, and Paul tries telling people, hey, there's going to be some problems, and people are basically like, dude, you don't know anything about leading a boat or anything. You're a rabbi. Just keep your mouth shut. And they're like, oh, it's going to get bad. And then they end up shipwrecked in Acts 28, and they're on this place called Malta, and in being shipwrecked, Paul is bit by a snake, and he shakes the snake off. It doesn't bother him because God is with him, and shakes the snake off, and it's, it's interesting that Paul, in that moment, he's finally on his way to Rome, the one place he wanted to get to. He's on his way. He's on his way there as a prisoner. He ends up shipwrecked. There's a snake that bit his hand. He has every, every justification to be very frustrated, to start complaining. Oh, it should have been this way. Oh, it could have been this way. Oh, this is, this is the worst. But even after all of that, he notices a need and still chooses to bring healing to another person. Instead of being complaining and frustrated and getting off focus, he decides to see the place that he is, he is at as a sent place by God. Look at this in Acts 28. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him. And after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming into him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were, sit- setting all, when were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. So not only does Paul heal one guy, he then heals many people and they're cured and God is on the move. We need to adjust to this form of adaptability, that things are going to come our way. But we can still follow Jesus no matter what has come our way, no matter where we end up, no matter what seems to be happening in the society or in the world around us. We can still move forward in the way of Jesus. Instead of having so many conversations about what the church used to be, maybe we should start having more conversations about what the church can become. Instead of talking about so much, oh, it used to be this or it used to be like that, let's start talking about who we can be and who God has called us to be and who we can become and what we can start doing. I think some of this comes from a distorted view of freedom because it's one of the things I hear. Oh, oh, we're, we're losing our freedoms. We're, we don't have as many freedoms as we used to have. And once again, I said this a couple weeks ago, if you want to be involved in healthy, Christ-like political discourse, go for it. You know, we live in a country where you have the ability to do that. But I think it gets distorted when we start acting as if our freedom comes from a governmental structure, when our freedom actually comes from Christ. Oh, they're taking away, they're taking this away, they're taking that away. I think we need a higher view of freedom. That there's a freedom that comes in Christ that exists above, beyond, and outside of any freedom that any business or corporation or structure or person could ever give you. That there's a freedom in Christ that we can always live as people who are free because he is the one who gives freedom. Once again, to quote from John Mark Comer in his latest book, Live No Lies, he says, freedom, about freedom, freedom not just to choose, but to choose the good. For them, Jesus and Paul, freedom isn't about autonomy from authority, but about liberating loving relationships from sin. And positive freedom means we need a kind of power from outside of ourselves to overcome our desires for self-gratification and fulfill our desires for self-giving love. True freedom in the way of Jesus, see, we, we think that freedom means, oh, I'm free from authority and I can do whatever I want whenever I want. But true freedom in the way of Jesus is actually following in the authority of Jesus and recognizing that under his authority, we have been set free to do that which is good. We have been set free to serve others. We have been set free to walk in love. We have been set free to not think about me first, but to think about others first. We have been set free to serve others as Christ walked in a place of service to others. We have been set free, not just to do whatever I want, but we've been set free to work for the good of all creation. That's what freedom in Christ looks like. And as we journey through the book of Acts, we see time and time again that the early church had this view of freedom, that there was a freedom that that was given to them that existed beyond any human structure. It's really compelling the way the book of Acts starts out in Acts chapter 1. Jesus ascends into heaven in Acts 1. He physically ascends. People witnessed it with their own eyes. And there was a rumor, a legend in this time period That when a Caesar or a Roman emperor passed away, that their spirits would ascend into the heavens. That's what people would say. And so Acts starts with Jesus physically ascending into the heavens. So Jesus is upstaging Caesar at this point in time. Basically, yeah, you know, there's a spirit that ascends into the heavens. For Caesar, watch this. My body is physically going to ascend into this other dimension called heaven. He upstages Caesar, demonstrating that Jesus is king. Therefore, Caesar ultimately is not. And so the church continues to move forward, bringing the message of Jesus all throughout the book of Acts. And it gets crazy. People get beheaded. People get stoned. People are imprisoned. As we saw earlier, people get shipwrecked. It's a crazy story. But the church keeps moving forward. They don't allow any of that to stop them. Because they recognize that their freedom does not come from Caesar. Their freedom does not come from the religious structures of the time that were against them. Their freedom came from Christ, so therefore they could not be stopped from walking in the way of Christ. They could not be stopped from working for the good of others because their freedom was from him. And the book of Acts starts with Jesus upstaging Caesar. Caesar. And then through all of that, the church keeps moving forward, and it ends with Paul in Rome, right under the nose of Caesar, declaring that Jesus is king. Look at this in Acts chapter 28. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, and he was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and unhindered. I love that Luke records that all openness and unhindered. Because from a worldly perspective, he was, he was imprisoned. He was trapped. But from a kingdom of God perspective, all openness, unhindered. And Acts starts with Jesus upstaging Caesar. And ends with Paul under the nose of Caesar declaring that Jesus is king. Because there's a kingdom that exists above and beyond and outside of all earthly kingdoms. And there's a freedom that comes from Christ that can never be taken from any of us. Instead of always getting so caught up in little squabbles. Instead of always getting caught up in every little culture war. Instead of getting caught up in name calling all the time. May we regain the simplicity of just simply following Jesus. May we regain the simplicity of just simply following Jesus. Because what we see in Acts is that when you simply follow him, no matter what comes your way, he will get us to where we need to go. He will always get his church to where he needs us to go. No matter what happens, we will always have a message of freedom that is above, beyond, and in some ways even outside of any structure of this world. And if we just simply follow him, he is good, he is faithful, and he will get us to where we need to go. So, how do we as the church exist in an age of deconstruction? How do we as the church exist in an age that's constantly changing and moving back and forth? Let's always reconsider our approach. Instead of always come and get Jesus from us, let's bring Jesus to others. Your life is an access point for someone to experience Jesus. And as you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, you are bringing the very life and message of Jesus with you. Let's be people who consider our aim and not just aim at other people, but recognize that people are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy, and he's the one who is working to destroy, so we are going to work in the name of Christ as overcomers to bring life above all else. Let's be adaptable. Instead of getting so caught up, and this is how things used to be, we are going to focus on who we can become, and no matter what comes our way, let's just follow Jesus to wherever it is that he's taking us. This is how we as the church will move forward. This is how no matter what else, we will be able to go and make disciples. There's a freedom that we have that can never be taken from us.